You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're not going to read any particular scripture, but uh, as you have your Bibles, I want to walk you through the first seven chapters of the book of Matthew and establish with you uh, his focus and flow of what he's trying to accomplish uh, in his writings and what he's trying to say to us and to his people. And it's a phenomenal uh, uh, book, uh, to say the least. So uh, again, thank you for letting me spend uh, Christmas Eve with you. There isn't any question that the uh, whole focus of Matthew's book is on Jesus the King. I mean, you can't even casually read it without coming back to that and being deeply aware that that is his focus, that Jesus has come and Jesus is the King. Uh, the king idea in Matthew's gospel, uh, everywhere he presents it, and especially as you get into the uh, ending chapters, is a very unique kind of presentation because Jesus is unlike any king that you've ever heard about. It's almost an upside-down kind of king. Uh, and there have been books that have been written on that idea, the upside-down kingdom, because most kings are into rulership and using people. They have big palaces. They uh, have lots of servants. They, uh, they have a nice high lifestyle. They uh, ride in the best vehicles. They uh, are full of pomp and glory. Everybody bows when they come in. Jesus is this king that bleeds, suffers, and dies. Jesus is this one who rolls up his sleeves and says, oh, how can I serve you? And you say, whoa, wait a minute, you're the king, I should be serving you. And he says, no, I'm the kind of king who wants to serve you. And backed up by in his kingship, of course, is backing his kingship is all the power and the resource of all that he is as God, which brings his service to you unique and significant. And so when you're looking at this kingship of Jesus, it's a, just a... It's a strange kind of kingship, and you can't look at it like you look at any other kind of king who's selfishly ruling to derive from you what he wants. For Jesus is pouring his life out for you. When you come to the Old Testament, his kingship is just laid out in page after page and prophet after prophet. Uh, the very first messianic promise was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we've talked about it often, but it's the idea of uh, God turned to Adam and Eve and then to the devil and said, hey, I'm warning you that this uh, seed of this woman is going to step on your head. And he was talking about the kingship of Jesus, that Jesus was going to come as king and he was going to step, yes, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to step on your head. And the first messianic promise was given and was fulfilled, of course, in the person of Jesus. As that developed in the book of Genesis, things like this were written. Listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. 
And it was all about this, this king that was going to come. So everywhere you go in the Old Testament, you get this, this overwhelming emphasis of, of the kingship of Jesus. And when he arrives, he will rule forever and ever and ever. In fact, here in the prophets, they said, his rule shall be everlasting and eternal forever. The lineage of King David was involved in all of this. Nathan came to the King David and said, Your house and your kingdom shall endure for, before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Which was a promise from God to King David that someone from his loins would reign forever and ever and ever. And of course, it was all looking to this Christ, this, this birth of Jesus. The psalmist said, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possessions. Constantly through the book of Psalms, just the Psalms just rings with this phraseology of King of glory and Lord of host. It's all about his kingship, it's all about his position, it's all about the one who's coming to you, it's all about who he is. He's magnificent. Isaiah said things, the government will rest on your shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There shall be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Micah, uh, God made a promise through Micah to Bethlehem and said, From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Our king. Zephaniah said, tells us when he comes, he will be king of Israel. Israel, the Lord in your midst. Wow. Zechariah said, he will be just and endued with salvation. And when he reigns, every family on earth will be able to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Do you get the smell of that? Do you get the flavor of that? That there's something about this Jesus that's, Beyond, he's royalty. He is the king. And what we're celebrating, of course, in Christmas is the birth of this king. And when you thunder into Matthew's gospel, he picks up on all, he's writing to Jews, you know, and he picks up on all that flavor of the Old Testament. And everywhere he turns to talk about Jesus, he brings us back to this, this fact that Jesus is the king. For instance, Matthew verse 1 down through verse 17 is the genealogy. And it's the genealogy, his ancestry. And what does it present to us? It presents to us a lineage that proves he is the king. And again, we've said to you before that the first test of anybody who claimed to be a Messiah was they had to be able to prove that they were of the lineage of King David. And I'm amazed because 
You see, Jesus was crucified around 30, the year 30 or 33 or right along in that time. And in the year 70, which was 40 years later, Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed. Jesus was the last one that could absolutely prove and verify his lineage in the genealogy. Because you see, when Jerusalem was destroyed, all the documents that could verify it were burned and destroyed with it. Jesus verifying in this genealogy the fact that he is the son of David. And, and, and Matthew starts out with that overwhelming convincing fact. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, verse 1. The son of David. Listen, folks. He is the king. The genealogy, his ancestry, verifies it. Then he moves you to verse 18. And in verse 18, down through the end of chapter 1, you have this, this genesis, the beginnings. The Genesis, his arrival. Right in the middle of this, this birth of Christ and the prophecy of the birth, an angel shows up, of course, and gives this overwhelming mission statement of what he's going to be all about and that he will save his people from their sins. That's the kind of king he's going to be. And in the prophecy is given right out of Isaiah in verse 23 that says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, that there will be no earthly father. He will be born of God. Divine blood will be flowing through his veins. It will be the total nature of God and the total nature of man literally merged together in one human body. And this individual that you will be rubbing shoulders with who will be born in your manger will literally be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will be the Messiah. The king. What a picture. He goes on to verify it, not only with the genealogy, his ancestry, and also the Genesis, his arrival, but in chapter 2, he gives this unique story. It's not found anyplace else in the Scriptures, just right here. And it goes from verse 1 uh, down through verse 12, and it's the story of the guest, his astrologers. Because you see... These wise men from Babylon who have been studying the stars, think of the sacrifice involved. They got on camels and traveled for two years, roaming the countryside. They were the makers of kings. In other words, people came to them in order to become a king, but they're not making this king. The stars have talked to them and told them that there is a king, a new king, and they must find him. And they have traveled for two solid years. They traveled with an army. Think of the expense. Think of going all over the countryside, feeding that army day after day and all the expense involved because they have this desperate drive to find this, this king, this new king, this king announced by the stars. And when they find him, they, they worship and pack their bags and go back home. And that's it. That was enough. Just to see the king, just to embrace him once, satisfied the depth of their longing in their hearts. Because he is the king. The king. And what was Matthew trying to say by all of that? It was the fact that he's not a king of a 
little Jewish sect of people over in the corner of a world, and the rest of us are left out. He is the king, ladies and gentlemen, of all nations. can't tell you what a big deal this is. That all nations will gather together and he will be Lord of all and King of everyone. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And all the Muslims will bow and all the Hindus will bow and all the Buddhists will bow and every nation will come under the rulership of this one person. Amen. He is king. And the wise men from the east come to Jerusalem, run up and down the streets saying, where is your new king? For they have recognized him. They know who he is. Chapter 2, verse 13, he Matthew launches into the guidelines, his authentication. And there is drama that is spilled through this. And if you want to know how strong his kingship is, this kingship of Jesus, you want to look at the enemies who are trying to eliminate his kingship. And of course, here is Herod, who has all authority. Herod, who can speak the word and... and Baby boys are destroyed. Herod, who can pronounce an edict and people die. Herod, with all of his authority, feels so threatened by this newborn babe, he cannot tolerate it. He must eliminate him. And the demonic forces are turned loose, all to come against this this newborn king, which tells you how significant this kingship is, which tells you how important it is to recognize him for who he is. He is king. When you come to chapter 3, there is an introduction in chapter 3, verse 1 through 12, the going before his announcer. Every king has a herald. The herald is the individual who went before the king would show up and he would announce the coming of the king and blow the trumpet and the people would line up and be prepared for this monarch, for this, for this, for this royalty to come into their presence. Jesus too. But it's a strange kind of, see, this is the twist of it. It's a strange kind of herald because he's John the Baptist who is everybody but royalty is in the wilderness but he is preparing the way and he's the voice of one verse in verse three the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his path straight and you have this herald who's come who's saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand then you come down to verse 13 of chapter 3, and it goes to the end of the chapter. And what a section this is, because you see, this is the guarantee, his advocate. His kingship is backed up by the Father. And it's in this moment that this king is literally filled and blessed by the very essence, and the triune God shows up, ladies and gentlemen, in this passage. 
There is Jesus who is being baptized and filled. And there is the Father who is speaking in overwhelming blessing. And there is the Holy Spirit who is literally lighting upon him like a dove. Because you see, this Jesus has the backing of the triune God himself. He indeed is the king. In chapter 4, verse 1 down through 11, you, you come into uh, the guile, his attack. And you enter into the wilderness temptation and the devil in all of the onslaught of all the power he can muster comes at Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness temptation. Should a king have to go through this? Absolutely. Because you see, you see the power of the king expressed in his victories. How successful is he? What kind of king would you honor who had not done battle and won? And we see Jesus in the overwhelming spiritual war and know that he can conquer sin and bring deliverance every single time because he does not waver. He is the king who is victorious in every sense and in every arena. What a king he is. And then you come to chapter 4, verse 12. And in this verse 12, down through the end of the chapter, you have this gift. He is, it is the gift, his assistance. He begins his ministry. And he is the light that shines in the darkness. And Matthew begins to describe the People who sat in darkness, verse 16, have seen a great light. And what is this king all about but one who marches into the desolate land of your life and brings freshness and brings energy and brings newness and brings light and brings the brilliancy of the sun himself. He is the king. He calls disciples to follow him, he heals the multitudes. He indeed is the king. And then he comes to chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is the great manifesto, the gospel, his announcement. And he is announcing in these, this Sermon on the Mount the phenomenal principles and insights and inner workings of his kingdom and what he's really, the kind of king he's come to be. And you understand, he's not giving us in the Sermon on the Mount a list of rules and demands. He's giving us his character, who he is, how it plays out in his own life. For he is a king who says, turn the other cheek, and you see him do it. He is a king who says, go the second mile, and you see him walking the distance. He is a king that says, love your enemies. And you see him spilling his life out, redeeming all of those who hate him. What a king. He is the king. There is an application question in light of this. Don't answer the question lightly. It's not trivia. 
Don't be half-hearted. Don't be casual. But all of this brings us to a question. Is he your king? The demons have sense enough to do what he tells them to do. The stars bow at his feet. The raging sea grows calm when he speaks to it. Everything comes under his control. But do you? Do you? And I know the casual answer would be, oh, oh, yeah, 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 no problem. I believe he's king. We're not asking you if you believe he's king. We're asking you if he's your king. And immediately when we think in those terms, we think in terms of a king who's over there, who lives in the palace outside of town, who has a series of rules and operations, but he doesn't live at my house. I have my own life. He has his. But see, that's not the question. The question here is, is he your king? Meaning, meaning, have you opened up the door of your internal living and have you allowed him to permeate the depth of your system? See, it's one thing to have a king who lives outside of town who makes some rules that you gotta, you know, you gotta go to church and you need to read a Bible and you need to pray before your meals and yeah, you can shape up and do that. It's another thing to have a king who comes and lives in your system and literally interferes with every activity, every attitude, every word coming out of your mouth. That's a different kind of deal. See, it's one thing to have the God of the church and I come down and visit him. It's another thing to have the God of my heart who reigns in my life. And I'm under his constant influence. The very mannerisms of my system are bowing at his feet. My thought process is constantly under his scrutiny. Again, let me ask you. Is he your king? And I would confess to you that what happens to me is the minute I open the door to him and say, yes, come on in and be my king, everything in my life that isn't under his control screams out, rebels. Because all of these arenas of my life are fighting for control. See, it isn't a matter of Will you have a king who controls your life or will you not? You will have a king. You have no choice on that. 
The only thing you have a choice on is who will be your king. And when he marches in, every, everything that's not under his control goes to war. And I look at my life and I wonder why things are in turmoil in my life and why there's upset and why I'm emotionally disturbed and why all of this is taking, why I'm depressed, why all this stuff is going on in my life. And wouldn't it be interesting if it was just his presence and my whole system is warring because he's claiming me for himself. And all the way from my habits to my body drives to my sex drive to my belly to my emotions to my attitude to my relationships to peer pressure, the list just goes on and on. Each one claiming it's right to be what it wants to be. Now being drawn into the influence and reign. Do you, do you want peace? Here's where it's found. Everything under the control of the king. Do you want direction? Oh. Here's where it's found. My life in its destiny. Motivated and moved by the power of the king. Do you want purity? How would you ever get over guilt? And how could you ever accomplish the words, go and sin no more? Have you tried that? There is no king that can pull that off, but this king, this king, who comes to indwell within, changes the very way you think. And the way you view things. Oh, he's king, folks. He's king. The king has been born. He's invading your territory. I think it's hilarious. Wars breaking out. Herods are getting upset. He's a threat. He's a threat. But he wins. Ah, but will he win in you? See, will he win your heart? Will you be his? Jesus, don't give up on me. Don't, don't give up on me. Break through. And yeah, there's all of these arenas and areas of my life that are fighting for their autonomy and wanting their own way. And 
My self-centeredness is so strong, O oh God. But, O oh King, be born in me and break me of every control except yourself. And not let nothing in my life be in charge but you. And let no influence dictate my action but your influence. And let no self-centered worry extend itself in my emotions but bring me into peace and able to sing in full voice joy to the world. The Lord has come to this world, my world, me, and the war is over. The surrender flag is waved. And I belong to the king. Heads are bowed. Not a finger in your face, not a bawling out. Not a scolding. An encouragement. An encouragement. There's rest found in his kingship. There's peace. Everything else is war. His kingship is the eye of the storm. It's the place to dwell. And everything in your life that's battling for its rights. All the anger that wants its own way. All the self-pity that desires its own expression. Would you bring it all? Would you come to the king who wants to rule in your life and bathe your weariness with his blood and make you his? Come, will you? Come to the King. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the Ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit BraveHeartedVoices.com.